Um, I need to do something before I preach. I just got to do this, okay? Hallelujah! Hallelujah! You know, you got to get that out. It, when it gets in here, man, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare everybody, but gosh, that's been in there for a couple of days, brother mine. You know, I go to some churches, brother Kevin, I know you don't, but I go to some churches, look like they're going through a colonoscopy preparation. And this is just, um, my gosh, I have so enjoyed this. Um, thank you, Hillcrest, for the invitation to come back. I know Brother Rock was talking about he loves that third invitation. Man, I'm just glad when they call you back a second time, man. I, I just appreciate it so very much, and thank you for letting me come. Travis and you guys, choir, the music has been off the charts. Master's voice, I love you. Uh, you know, the most impressive thing about Master's Voice is what I saw them do last night. And I know Brother Kevin talked about this, so I won't belabor the point. But uh, they changed songs because they felt like the Holy Spirit told them to do that. Now, buddy, you can do anything else as far as I'm concerned. But when you're spirit-led, that's just so awesome. God bless you. God bless your staff and every one of you preachers. Brother Tommy, so awesome to meet a brother from another mother. Uh, I just wish Brother Tommy would get a little excited. Um, when he preaches. And then Brother Kevin brought the house down, man. I'll be praying for you, brother. I love you so much. And then Brother Mike Stone will be coming in just a moment. Take your copy of the Word of God and find First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1. We'll be in Second Peter chapter 1, I promise you. Second Peter chapter 1. I want to preach on this subject more than a book. I'm going to talk about the Word of God this morning. That, that's a pretty good subject, wouldn't you agree? You know, three times the Bible says this about itself. It said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That makes this more than a book. Adrian Rogers said one time, we read books, but this book, the Bible reads us. That makes it more than a book. I want to talk about that for just a few moments. Find 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 16 and after you find that, would you stand to your feet and honor the reading of the Word of God? Notice what Peter says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came down from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mountain we also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well to take heed of a light that is a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your heart. Knowing this verse that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I'm preaching on this subject more than a book. More than a book. Would you be seated all over the building with your Bibles open in your laps? I love the story of the Backwoods Kentucky family. They didn't get out much, but they found themselves in the largest city in America, New York City, for an entire weekend. Actually, Ma had won a three-day, two-night stay in the Big Apple, and she could take two people with her, so she took 
Paul, her husband, and Junior, her son, and off they went. From the time the chauffeur-driven limousine picked them up and took them to the airport, and they flew first class into New York City, and another chauffeur-driven limousine picked them up and took them to a five-star hotel. They were living the dream. When Mom went to check them into the hotel, Paul and Junior went to just kind of take in the sights and sounds of the lobby, and pretty soon Junior became mesmerized by the elevator. He had never seen an elevator before, and what captivated him so much is the fact that that door would open and a group of people would get on the elevator, the door would close, and when the door opened again, they wouldn't be there anymore. But there would be another group of people that would get off. He called it a magic box. He said, Paul, come see the magic box. And Paul said, what are you talking about? He said, well, watch this. There's four businessmen, suits, ties, and briefcases. They're going to get on the magic box. Now watch this. The door's going to close. Now, Paul, brace yourself because the door's going to open in just a minute, and they're not going to be there anymore. Well, where did they go? I don't know. But here's the amazing thing. They're not going to be there anymore, but a different group of people are going to come out of the magic box. You're kidding me. Pretty soon the door opened, and sure enough, a lady and her two small children got off the elevator. And then it happened. A rather unattractive lady got on the elevator, and the door closed, and pretty soon it opened, and a ravishing blonde that came out of a glamour magazine model-type gorgeous lady gets off the elevator, and Paul stands there for just a moment, and then he takes off running, and Junior said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to go get your mama, <laughs> and I'm going to run her through the elevator. <laughs> I believe Paul was uh, seeing a miracle, don't you? I love miracles, don't you, when they occur, and it's not that I'm necessarily looking for one, but I sure do love it when one comes. I guess that's why I love the Word of God so much, because it's a miracle book. Do you know that Isaiah 40 verse 8 says that when everything else is done away with, the Word of God will still be here? That's a miracle. Do you know that Romans 1.16 says that the Word of God is so powerful it's been known to explode all the beer in a man's refrigerator? That's powerful. That's a miracle. Do you know the book that you hold in your hand is actually one book with 66 books written by 40 men across an almost 1600 year span of time and do you know that not many of those people not many of those 40 authors ever met one another they lived on different continents lived on different time periods spoke different languages but do you know that all 40 of them are in total agreement that the bible is the inspired word of god in fact do you know the bible is the only book that lays claim to absolute perfection from cover to cover not a mistake in it not an error in it not a contradiction in it it's the infallible, inerrant, inspired, incredible, perfect, perfect word of the living God. It's an amazing book. And then all the miracle stories that are in it. Like Joshua 10, when God told the sun to stand still for an entire day to give Joshua more daylight to win a battle. Or what about that miracle story in Numbers 22 where a donkey talked to a man? Now, you know, people say that happens every day in Washington, D.C., but that's a miracle. And then one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament about three teenage boys that were bound and thrown and gagged into a furnace of fire but came out unburned, uncharred, untanned. Shoot, when they pulled them out of the fire, they didn't even smell like they'd been near a fire and they were in a fire. Or the greatest story ever told, it's in here. 
It's the story of the only baby that ever announced his own birth. It goes something like this. God left his home in heaven, stopped by the dressing room of Mary's womb, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, rose from the grave, lives in everybody's heart that will let him. Every day he prays for us. One day he's coming back for us. Oh yeah, this is more than a book. But maybe the most amazing thing about the Word of God is if you read it, and heed it and do what it says, it'll absolutely change your life. And that's what Peter tells us in the first line of verse number 16. Notice what it says again. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. And notice the first line in verse number 19, which we also have a more sure word of prophecy that you would do well to take heed as a light that shines in a dark place. That word uh, Fables is the Greek word muthos, and it's translated myths and sagas. And that's how the opponents of the Word of God have treated the Bible over the years as a collection of fairy tales and fiction, a, a, a bunch of legends and lies. But it, Peter urges us in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 15, to always be ready to give an answer to anyone that asks about the hope that is in us. He reminds us in this second epistle that that hope is not found in a fairy tale. It's not a made-up story of making believe. It is not somebody's fabrication of some disclosure from somebody else's idea, but it's the truth of the Word of Almighty God. Life-giving communication, manna for the soul, good news for everybody, a light that shines in a dark place. It's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. For a few moments, I want to find out what Peter has to say as to why this book is more than a book, why it's accurate, why it's true, why it's correct, and why it's dependable. And while I'm sure I don't have to convince a whole bunch of folks in this building about the authenticity and the reliability of the Word of God, can I tell you about the impact of the book that you hold in your hand? It has been for generations, and it shall be for generations to come. If we will just live this truth, if we will just proclaim this as truth, there's nothing more important than the truth that comes out of this book. This book changes lives. You don't need to defend it. All you need to do is unleash it. You don't need to argue with men about it. All you need to do is win people with it. It is more than a book. And by the way, if you notice whatever preacher has done when they've gotten up here to stand and preach, they've opened up the book. Not the book that they have just written, but his book. Not some idea, not some inspiration from some article in some kind of magazine, not somebody's opinion, but we have opened up the Word of God. And ladies and gentlemen, long after this conference is over, the impact of it will be felt on what we did with the information that God gave us from His Word. This has not been a talent show. This is his show. And ladies and gentlemen, let me just tell you, we will be different than when we came in the door a couple of days earlier because of this book and what we do with this book. It's more than a book because this book doesn't just contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. So for a few moments, I want to see what Simon Peter had to say about this book and why it's more than a book. First of all, the Bible is more than a book because of what others say about it. I think I'm going to say that again. The Bible is more than a book because of what others say about it. Look at that 16th verse one more time. 2 Peter chapter 1, for we did not follow cunningly devised 
fables, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Bible study with me for just a moment. In a few verses before that 16th verse, Simon Peter kind of gives a deathbed statement. Now, he's not on his deathbed, but he kind of talks about dying. He refers to a time that he and Jesus had a conversation about it about 30 years before. After Jesus had risen from the grave, just before Christ was going to ascend back to heaven, they were walking along the seashore of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus reminded him that the earthly house would soon dissolve away and it would be no more. Brother Kevin talked about that last night. And of course, Jesus being God knew that Simon Peter would die as a young man because he would die a martyr's death. In fact, ironically, as he's talking here, Peter is, this is not very long before he dies. History tells us he died around 66 to 68 A.D. And his second uh, epistle is, is, is agreed upon that it was finally written at about 65 A.D. So I'm wondering if Peter knew something as he's talking here. Besides, Peter knew that he couldn't keep his mouth shut concerning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd been warned countless number of times, you better stop preaching about Jesus or we're going to stop you from preaching about Jesus. He knew it was only a matter of time. So he gives this wonderful statement in the 15th verse. Notice that verse before that, 16th verse. He says, be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after I'm gone. What are these things? All the things that have been written and recorded up to that time, the Old Testament scripture, both of the epistles that Peter was writing, what his buddies Matthew and Mark had already written down, what his uh, friend, the historian Luke, had written down. And although it would be sometime later before John would write his gospel, I'm wondering if John sometime around this time told Peter that he was writing down some words about his time with Jesus. Peter said all these things, all those times that we were with Christ, all those days in the early church, Peter said long after. After I'm gone. You make sure that these things are not spoken of as a fable or a folklore or fiction. They were fact. And this stuff was real because we were there and we saw it happen. And then Peter gives a great dissertation in verse 17 and 18 when he was with Jesus and his friends James and John. And he saw Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. Did you notice that 18th verse? Peter said, we heard the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter's already told us in verse 10 to make our calling and election sure. And now he's saying there's an authority we can depend on. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Translated, we have seen his power. We've seen enough crime shows to know that a case is made or broken by the amount of evidence that is gathered. What is gathered at the crime scene and were there any eyewitnesses and were there any testimonies and do those testimonies, are they consistent with one another? And in recent days, of course, in recent years, the idea of the evidence of DNA has made a case uh, blown wide open by, by what they've discovered. But ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing more viable than eyewitnesses. Two people cooperating together that puts the suspect at the scene of the crime. And of course, we've seen this more than one time. The videotape catch, catches the suspect coming into a convenience store and wielding the gun into the clerk's face. And there is his face is on the camera for all the world to see. Busted, the mystery is over because of eyewitness evidence. I was a pastor for about 15 years, and 
I'll never forget, I was pastoring a church in Texas, and I had a little five-year-old at home. And I'll never forget the day that I, I, my wife had a doctor's appointment or whatever, and we lived on the, 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 the church field, and, and Brother Rock talked about Parsonage life last night. And, and so I was able to watch my son, and I was able to go next door and do some church work for about five or ten minutes and come back and watch my son. I wasn't gone, but more than five or ten minutes at a time. I'll never forget going to the church during one of those times and coming back. And the only way I can describe it to you is I walked into my kitchen and a peanut butter bomb had exploded. Let me try to just bring you there. Peanut butter was on the walls and peanut butter was on the floor. And a cute little five-year-old thing peanut butter handprint was on the refrigerator door. The peanut butter jar was open, it had fallen over, and the peanut butter had puddled onto the countertop and that now has begun to run to the floor. Now my son was busted, do you understand? Because there was only three human beings living in the house at the same time and my wife didn't do it and I know dad didn't do it. We hadn't yet taught our little dog how to go to the cabinet and reach up and grab the jar of peanut butter and make him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So the evidence was in. My son was the culprit, so I called out his name. His name is Ronnie, and I called out his name in a voice that sounded like, you better get here yesterday. And when he comes running and standing before me, there was no reason for an interrogation. Peanut butter was in his hair. Peanut butter was running down the sides of his mouth. Peanut butter was caked in those cute little fingernails of his. And there was peanut butter fingerprints all over his T-shirt. Now, parents, you have seen this next scene, but let me describe it to you. I didn't know what else to say, but say, Ronnie, can you explain this? And what Ronnie did next, I just simply call the no clue look. Now, parents, you've seen it. It's something like this. Our children don't know what they did five minutes before, apparently, my son wrote the book on ADD before ADD was cool, and he had no clue. So I'm getting ready to, I don't know, whip his behind or something, and he makes the first of two amazing statements. Statement number one, Dad, I don't know who did this, but I know I haven't been in the peanut butter. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry or run away from home. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Parenting is the truth and proof of original sin. Can I get a witness in the house? Amen. So I'm getting ready to do something, and here comes amazing statement number two. Dad, I don't know who did it, but you better know I'm going to find out. And until I find out, I'm going to help you clean up the kitchen. I'm thinking, oh, what a wonderful child you are. No, I probably said something about if you're going to live to see another moment, you better clean it up. Busted! 
I saw it with my own eyes. You know what Peter said? Peter said, I was there. Peter said, I saw the blind eyes open and I saw the deaf ears unstopped. Peter said, I was there. I saw the lame walk and, the, and I saw the lepers cleanse. I, I saw the demon possessed delivered. I saw all that food multiply. I was there. I was there the day Jesus came to my house and my mother-in-law was sick and he touched her and he made her whole. I was there. I saw it happen. I was there in the pre-dawn hours on the Sea of Galilee. I saw him walking on the water. I ought to know. I was spitting up seaweed about five seconds later when I tried to do the same thing and I took my eyes off of him. I was there the morning on the Sea of Galilee. I was cleaning my nest. The boys and I had been out all night fishing and Jesus comes walking up and he gets in one of the boats. He goes, come on boys, launch out with me. And in a moment he said, go ahead and throw your nets on the other side. I tried to tell him we couldn't catch anything. We've been fishing all night. And do you know when we lived to those nets up. They were breaking. There was so much fish. I was there. And I saw it happen. And by the way, I wasn't by myself. Do you know how John begins his gospel? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And 13 glorious, happy, shouting hallelujah verses later. He said, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. In fact, look how his buddy John starts off his first epistle. It's right there to your right. You might have to turn a page like I did. Look at 1 John 1, 1, that which we saw from the beginning. We have heard, we have seen with our eyes. We have looked upon our hands have handled the word of life. For the life was manifested. We've seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen, we declare to you. And then my favorite chapter, the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus, the risen Lord, appeared first to Peter and then to the 12 and then to 500 people all at one time and then to James and the rest of the apostles and then finally to the apostle Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, they saw him dead on Friday and alive on Sunday morning. Now somebody has suggested that maybe they lied about it. Yeah, that's what they did because the apostle Paul later would post a message on his Twitter account saying, you know what? I don't think I really saw him and I would expect the rest of you 598 that did the same thing would change your story. Oh no, that didn't happen. But you know what did happen? History would tell us that eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness would suffer a hideous and torturous death. Matthew would be slain by an axe. Mark would be dragged through the streets of a city. Luke would be hung. Paul and James beheaded. Peter and Andrew crucified. Stephen and Philip stoned. Y'all remember Downing Thomas? He became hell disturbing Thomas. He took a spear in his heart and hundreds more died. Died for a lie. Oh no. But willing to live for a truth because it was about the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, you and I are eyewitnesses of the very same thing because one day we didn't know him and then one day we met him and he came to live in our hearts and we've been following the proof and the truths of the word of God. We've tried it and we know it works in our lives. Hallelujah. Last year I asked you to pray for my neighbor Charlie. 23 years, he's been lost without Jesus as my neighbor. Now, I know that you, and I probably said this last year, I know you can't be more than lost, but Charlie's more than lost, man. I mean, he's lost, lost. I've never seen somebody so hungry for the gospel 
but the young man won't bite. Smart man, degreed engineered from the University of Oklahoma. Smart man, smart man, smart man. But sometimes he just talks like he doesn't have a clue, and he loves to talk. He'll see me pull in, Brother Kevin, I still got my bags packed from a recent revival, or I just came in from the airport, and he's waving his arms, and I go over there. He wants to talk. He wants to talk about the Bible. Now, most of the time, he wants to argue. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. He wants to argue. For the longest time, Brother Kevin, he, want, he, he would say, why do you Christians believe that Jesus is the only way? And I would talk to him, and he'd ask it the next day and the next day. Finally, I just said, Charlie, would you quit fretting that there's only one way? Rejoice that there is a way. Amen? But lately, he's been on this, do you believe what you're preaching, Ron? Ron, what do you take with you when you go to these revivals? And I say, I take my Bible, man, and sermons that God has led me. So you preach from the Bible. So you believe that stuff, do you? You believe all of that stuff really happened. You believe everything about it. And I said, Charlie, I absolutely do. About that time, I didn't want to talk to him anymore. Have you ever been there? Man, I just wanted to go back to the house and on the way go, you stupid, stupid man. But you know, I know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to be transparent. And about that time, my neighbor comes out of his house. I could see him over Charlie's shoulder. My brand new neighbor, Charlie, had not met him as of that moment. His name is Mark, and he's got the longest last name I've ever heard, about 23 letters, Mark Gablotskowitz. And I don't know, God just spoke to me, and I said, Charlie, you ever met Mark Gablotskowitz? And Charlie started laughing, and he said, Mark who? And I said it again, and he goes, you're making up that name, aren't you? And I said, no. I want to introduce you to Mark Gablotskowitz. Oh, yeah? Is he going to appear out of the sky? And about that time, Mark came over his left shoulder. I said, Charlie, meet Mark Gablotskowitz. <laughs> Last year, I met a bunch of wonderful people. One of them is Mike Shelby, the associate pastor of the Hillcrest Baptist Church. I met him. We've talked a bunch over the last year. We've talked a whole bunch before I got up here this morning. I leaned over to him as I got up to say thank you. And Mike Shelby is my friend. A long time ago, I didn't know Jesus. I'm like Pastor Rock, been going to church all my life. Nine months before I was even born, I heard about Jesus, and one day I met him. And since that time, we talk a bunch. I just talked to him before I came up in the pulpit. And Jesus is my friend. We are eyewitnesses of his power. So first of all, the book is more than a book because of what others say about it. Second of all, this book is more than a book because of what the Bible says about it. The Bible is amazing because the Bible says the Bible is amazing. Look at this 20th verse. Notice what it says, knowing this first. Peter says this is a priority, so listen up. That no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That means you can't make this Bible read any way you want to. This is the Word of God. And there is a truth in every word. Boy, I'd like to park there and preach a while. You can't make it read how you want it to read. It's going to read how God wrote it to begin with. Notice the rest of the verse. You know what? I think I am going to park there and preach a while. I remember last year when Brother Glenn invited me to preach. He said, Brother Ron, I want you to come to a real Bible conference. We people at Hillcrest Baptist Church 
believe the Bible is the real Word of God. And churches have drifted from that truth. And we're just committed to remind people that it still is real. You go Hillcrest. Amen. And you keep doing this. Ladies and gentlemen, yesterday I, I spoke about churches are more concerned with getting people in the house than they are getting God in the house. And you ought to read some of the church's websites. It goes something like this. Come to our church. We'll let you know just how important you are. Come to our church. It's our desire to put a donut and a cup of coffee in your hand because making you comfortable is our highest priority. Come to our church. Dress like you want. Come when you can. Stay as long as you can. Have a good time while you're here. Brother Kevin, I wish one church would put this on their website. Come to our church. We can't promise you that we're going to make you feel good while you're here, but we can promise you we're going to give you Jesus. In fact, if you feel comfortable while you're here and it's because of a sin problem, we pray that you get real uncomfortable until Jesus visits you and changes you by His glory. This is the Word of God, man. And it's going to read how God wants it to read. Then notice the rest of the verse. I didn't mean to get in all that, but it's too late now. Watch what it says. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That word moved is the Greek word that means to carry or bear along. It's a picture of a sailboat being carried along the sea by the wind. Forty men, forty men, forty men, forty men from all walks of life across the span of 1,600 years lived on three different continents from 13 different countries, from tax collectors to fishermen, from doctors to priests, all moved along by one. Holy men of God, Peter said, because you can't write about somebody you do not know. But ladies and gentlemen, there's only one author for sure. And I'm not going to get into the literary style and I'm not going to give into how much freedom God gave these men to write. I'm just going to say it this way. Forty human writers, all employed by one God, which makes a divine authorship unmistakable. This is the Word of God. And that alone makes it amazing enough. But you know, I don't think we realize just how amazing this book we hold in our hand is. So for just a moment... And a couple of awe moments. I want to see what the Bible says about itself that it's confirmed over and over again. There are many things I could say. Let me just give you two. First of all, recorded history reminds us that the Bible is amazing. And by recorded history, do you understand that there have been a few times where history has had to rewrite itself, correct itself, rethink itself, because history made a statement about something and they came along and had to correct themselves because the Bible made the correct statement all along. And had they just read the Bible to begin with, they could have saved themselves a whole lot of time and a whole lot of energy and a whole lot of man hours and sometimes people's lives. See, here's, I like to say it this way. The Bible's not a history book, but it does record history. And every time it does, a historical moment is documented in the Word of God. The Bible's proven to be more accurate than the history books that have written about history itself. I like to say it this way. The Bible isn't a history book. It's a book about his story, and you can trust it more than you can a history textbook. So you've heard some of these, but let's have some fun for a moment, okay? Let me give you a few examples of biblical facts that made history correct. It's a, first of all, the earth is flat theory. Thales, 7th century B.C., 
Greek god of philosophy was the first one to carry the idea that the earth was flat. And apparently it hung on and caught on because for years and years and years and years, the most brilliant minds believed the earth was flat. In fact, history books tell us that Christopher Columbus was warned, Chris, don't you go sailing to explore the new world. You'll sail right off the end because the earth is flat. By the way, do you know that Christopher Columbus in his belief had a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you, don't you think he consulted with the one that made the world? Don't you think he consulted with the one that wrote the book before he got in that boat? All I know is the first one to declare that the earth was round was not Pythagoras or Aristotle. It was scientist Isaiah in Isaiah 40, 22, sometime around 750 years before Jesus was born when he said, it is he who sits a Above the circle of the earth. By the way, that word circle is the Hebrew word where we get our English word sphere. And that word sphere wasn't even introduced in the English vocabulary until 1200 A.D. And speaking of planet earth, many who have held to the flat earth theory believe that the earth rested on the back of four elephants. Brilliant minds, brilliant minds, brilliant. And those elephants stood on the back of a giant turtle who flew around in space. Shoot, the ancient Greeks believed that the earth rested on the shoulder of their Greek god, Atlas. But had all of them consulted Job 26, verse 7. By the way, Job is considered by many the oldest book in the Bible. So we're talking a long, 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 long time ago. Had they consulted Job 26, verse 7, they would have realized that the earth was hung on nothing because that's what God did in the very beginning. I like that preacher that said God put it there, told it to stay there, and it's been there ever since even though scientists didn't discover it until 17th century A.D., for goodness sakes. Do you realize that same book, Job 38, verse 17, was the first to report that there were underwater springs in the oceans more than 4,000 years ago, but it wasn't until another born-again believer, Matthew Murray, was reading in the Bible one day in that Job passage, and also in Psalms 8:8, where the Bible speaks of underwater paths in the sea. He said, by God's help, I'm going to find them. And the father of modern-day oceanography used the Word of God to discover that there were paths in the sea thousands of years before anybody ever knew about it. Do you know that scientists for years believed there was a few more than a thousand stars in the sky? But Jeremiah 33, 22 told them all along that number is the sands of the sea. Do you know that scientists thought that light did not move? But Job 38, verse 19 and 24 said it moves all over the place. Are you kidding me? It's 187,000 miles per second is the speed of light. Do you know for years scientists believed that earth had no weight? Job 28, verse 25 said it's very heavy. Do you know that the medical community for years did not make it a practice for the doctors and the physicians and the surgeons to wash their hands before they interacted with a patient? I'm talking about maybe until just a little bit more than 100 years ago. Was that even a practice? But yet the book of Leviticus, Leviticus, we're talking way back there. Leviticus 15, 13 first mentioned that the spreading of germs could be greatly reduced and eliminated by washing your hands in water. And did you know that for centuries, scientists believed that winds blew in a straight direction until, until they discovered the current and that, 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 that the winds blew in a circular motion in the jet stream? Do you know what Meteorolo meteorologists first discovered that? Well, it wasn't Jim Cantori of the Weather Channel, I assure you, but it was King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes about 3,000 years ago. 
My, 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 my. History hadn't seemed to impact the Bible. The Bible had seemed to impact history. In fact, do you know of the more than 25,000 archaeological digs related directly to the Bible? None of them have ever contradicted anything in Scripture. They've only affirmed and confirmed that the Bible is the Word of God. Dr. Bruce Metzger, who is called by many the New Testament scholar of scholars in the 20th century, made this statement. After you take the 20,000 lines of the New Testament, it's safe for any scholar to say that 99.6% of the Bible has been corroborated by historical documents. In fact, Dr. Metzger once said, historians have been confounded by the impact the Bible has had on recorded history. The Bible is the most circulated, most quoted, best-selling, best-studied, most translated, most influential book ever written, and no other book comes close. So first of all, the Bible is amazing because of recorded history. I'm going to be here for a nanosecond, but let me give you the second one. The Bible is amazing because of fulfilled prophecy. See, it's one thing for the Bible to make history rewrite itself, rethink itself, recorrect itself. It's another thing for the Bible to make a prediction thousands of years before and watch it come true. Are you ready? Every single time. Every biblical prophetic prediction has or will come true by the time Jesus comes again. Do you know that there are more than 300 prophecies about Messiah Jesus coming the first time and he fulfilled them all? Yep. Prophecies like Micah 5, 2 that said where Jesus would be born. Daniel 9, 25 that said when Jesus would be born. Isaiah 7, 14 that said how Jesus would be born all 700 years before Jesus was born. Do you know Psalms 22 has about 33 references to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, but it would be about eight or 900 years before Romans ever instituted crucifixion as a means of corporal punishment. Zechariah 9.9 predicted 500 years before it happened, for goodness sake, that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and here he comes on that first day of that week riding on the back of a mule. Peter Stoner and Robert Newman write in their book, Science Speaks, that the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight of those 300 plus prophecies, are you ready? The odds of Jesus just fulfilling eight of them are one in 10 to the 17th power. How much is that, Ron? Bunch. It's a one with 18 zeros behind it. I suppose you call that quintillion. I don't even know if that's a number. I've never met a quintillionaire, if you understand what I'm talking about. But watch this. Stoner and Newman says that 1 in 10 to the 17th power, the odds of fulfilling that would be the same as covering the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep from border to border to border to border taking one of those silver dollars, put a red mark on it, burying it deep in the pile, and taking a blind man out there, and he'd find that red mark silver dollar the very first time. And that's just the odds of fulfilling eight, and Jesus fulfilled all 300 plus. This is an amazing book, is it not? Because of recorded history and because of fulfilled prophecy. It's been said that the French writer and atheist Voltaire on his deathbed said at that moment that a hundred years from that moment the Bible would be a forgotten book. Do you know what happened a hundred years after he died? One of his home sites in Geneva, Switzerland became a distribution center for the Word of God. 
and the Geneva Bible Society was created. The Bible's been burned, the Bible's been banned, the Bible's been belittled, but it's still here, and it's not going anywhere. I got one more and I got to go. I want to hear some preaching, man. I want to hear my buddy, so I got to go. Let me give you one more. The Bible's more than a book because of what others say about it. The Bible's more than a book because of what the Bible says about it. The Bible is more than a book, number three, because of what Jesus says about it. I love that first line of verse 19. This is the, the rich. You're talking about, I don't know how many times Brother Rock said rich last night. We're about to get rich here. I'm telling you that first line of verse 19 is rich. Notice what it says. We have a more sure word of prophecy. That word sure means firmly confirmed. Now that ought to be enough. The Bible is firmly confirmed. It's not just confirmed, it's firmly confirmed. But watch this. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter put another word there. He put the word more. That word means to the highest degree. Hallelujah. About to have a spell, man. Do you understand that firmly confirmed is pretty confirmed, but the Bible is firmly confirmed to the highest degree? Somebody might say, oh, lucky Peter, lucky Peter. I wish I'd have been there with Peter. He got a chance to walk with Jesus. Friend, I think we got something better. We've got, watch this, we've got the completed Word of God that is firmly confirmed to the highest degree, and we still get to walk with Jesus too every day of our lives. Because the Bible is who this, this the, the, Jesus is who this Bible is all about. One theme, God's redemption to fallen man. One subject, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. One purpose to glorify Him. One topic, the salvation of God. One villain, the devil. One hero, Jesus. And one result, we win. Amen. And the last line of verse 19 just wraps it all up. When it talks about the promise that all of that will remain till Jesus comes again. We get to do all that until and beyond. Because after we leave this place, we get to spend, oh, I don't know, a forever. With the one this book is all about. It's more than a book. It's more than a book because it has been confirmed or consistent with history. It's been congruent with truth and it's converged in one person. And his name is Jesus. This is more than a book because of the Savior of the world. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of woman. In Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, Jesus is holy. In number, Jesus is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, He is compassionate God. In Joshua, He's the captain of our salvation. In Judges, He's the judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, He's the kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, He's the son of David. In 2 Samuel, He's the trusted prophet. In 1 Kings, He's the God we serve. In 2 Kings, He's the reigning king. In 1 Chronicles, He is the glory of God. And in 2 Chronicles, He's our house of worship. In Ezra, he's our reconciliation. In Nehemiah, he's our wall of protection. In Esther, he is the power and presence of God. In Job, he's a suffering Savior. In Psalms, he's our song. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's our philosophy of life. In, Sol in, in the Song of Solomon, he is our love story. In Isaiah, he is God with us. In Jeremiah, he is the salve for our sorrows. In Lamentation, he's the hope of our deliverance. In Ezekiel, he's good news from the graveyard. The dead, dead dry bones will live again. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, he's covenant love and forgiveness. In Joel, he's a baptizer of Holy Ghost fire. In Amos, he's the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he's a mighty Savior. In Jonah, he's the center of God's will. In Micah, he's a baby born in Bethlehem. In Nahum, 
He is the, uh, the judgment of God. In Habakkuk, he's the evangelist crying out for revival. In Zephaniah, he's the coming day of the Lord. In Haggai, he's the peace of God. In Zechariah, he's the rebuilder of the temple of God. And in Malachi, he's the messenger of God. In Matthew, he's Messiah. In Mark, he's the miracle worker. In Luke, he's the son of man. In John, he's the son of God. In Acts, he's the head of the church. In Romans, he's God's gift of salvation to us. In 1 Corinthians, he's a risen Savior. In 2 Corinthians, he is the problem solver. In Galatians, he's the rock of our defense. In Ephesians, he's who we are in Christ. In Philippians, he's our joy. In Colossians, he's the foundation of truth. In 1 Thessalonians, he's the rapture of the church. In 2 Thessalonians, he's the soon coming king. In 1 Timothy, he's our example. In 2 Timothy, he's our encourager. In Titus, he's the blessed hope. In Hebrews, he's our high priest. In James, he's the faith that works. In 1 Peter, he's the chief shepherd. In 2 Peter, he's the word of God. In 1 John, he's everlasting love. In 2 John, he's our authority. In 3 John, he is our power. In Jude, he is the contender for our faith. And in Revelation, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Hallelujah! What a Savior and what a book. God bless you so very much.